I'd like to start this morning with um, Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, they're headed down the hill on a sled, and Calvin remarks to his playmate, the tiger Hobbes, I've been good all day so far. And Hobbes replies, Christmas is getting near, huh? And Calvin muses, you got it. But I've been wondering, is it truly being good if the only reason I behave well is so I can get more loot at Christmas? I mean, really, all I'm doing is saying I can be bribed. Is that good enough, or do I have to be good in my heart and spirit? In other words, do I have to really be good, or do I just have to act good? Hobbes says, well, I suppose in your case, Santa will have to take whatever he can get. And Calvin says, okay, so exactly how good do you think I have to act? Really good or just pretty good? So this is a classic case of dumbing down the standard as much as we can get away with, right? The speed limit sign says 55, but we know that they don't pull you over unless you're going over 70, so, or I'm sorry, 60. So uh, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. But, you know, so pretty soon everyone's doing 60, so they're really only likely to pull you over if you're a real speeder and you're going over 65, right? So before you know it, you've got to do 65 just to flow with traffic, and it's if you're going 75 that you're a real speeder. So let me ask you, does that only happen in cartoons and on the highway, or does it happen in life as well? Does it happen in our relationships and with our families? Does it happen in school? Does it happen at work? When we're surfing the internet or watching TV or when we file our taxes? Do we tend to dumb down the standards over time? And where does it stop? When yesterday's clearly wrong becomes today's new normal, how far do things have to slide before they've gone too far? When it's no longer safe for our children to play outside unintended? When there's no one we can trust with our secrets for fear that they'll be gossiped about? When corruption in government is rampant and so you can't get anything done without paying a bribe? When justice is reduced to preferring the one who has more cronies in high places or can pay a bigger bribe? Do you see the problem God has in running the universe? On the one hand, punishing everyone with what they deserve every time they do what's wrong seems heavy-handed and dictatorial. And yet, to let people get away with small infractions just leads to bigger ones and to bigger ones until society becomes unsafe and life becomes unmanageable and chaos reigns. Let's, or let me make this personal. In my mid-20s, I really came to grasp God's grace. Before that, I had lived in fear that if I didn't measure up to God, God would punish me. And so I, I strived and I fretted and I worried that if I didn't, um, that, that if I wasn't good enough, God would somehow turn his back on me. I, I tried so hard to be good. And, and when I felt I failed, I groveled in sin and in penance. On the other hand, when I felt I'd succeeded, I quickly looked down in judgment on the next guy who wasn't as spiritual as I was. But then I discovered grace. I realized that God had washed my slate clean by the blood of Jesus Christ and that as a result, there was nothing I could do to make God love me anymore and there was nothing I could do 
to make God love me any less. I was loved just the way I was. I was cherished. I was free. I was at peace. My debt was paid. It was as if my sins didn't even exist anymore. And I can tell you that this realization about grace has been transformative for me. It's um, freed me up not to judge others, but to love and to accept them. It's um, helped me and moved me to grow spiritually. It's changed my heart from the inside out. It's actually motivated me to serve God more faithfully. But truth be told, it has also, grace has also at times caused me to go soft towards sin. To cut myself too much slack. To dumb down what I know are God's standards for me. I think that's very much the situation the Israelites in today's story find themselves in. Because they have experienced heaps of God's grace. If you're reading through the story up to where we are in Joshua. God has set them apart from all the other nations of the world. God has promised to be with them. God has favored them and provided for them and protected them. We just saw last week that God has chosen them over the Canaanites and has given them assured victory in every battle that they must face. God has given them grace, abundant grace. But it's very easy to take all of that grace for granted and to think that God is just a mushy, softy, who will give us whatever we want. And pretty soon we've dumbed down God's standard for us until we've become a danger to ourselves and a danger to those around us. Well, what's God to do about this? Well, in today's story, we see part of the answer. Today's story, like last week's story, is in many ways a shocking and a troubling one. A man named Achan disobeys God by taking some of the forbidden plunder from the Battle of Jericho, which was supposed to be devoted to the Lord. And as a result, God burns with anger and God helps Joshua to ferret out who this man Achan is. And then the whole Israelite camp stone Achan and his family to death and they burn everything they own and then they heap rocks over the whole mess as a warning to any other would-be sinners to remember what had taken place there. Now I see at least four aspects of this story which might be disturbing to us. First, in verse 1, we have God's burning anger. Having God burn with anger, as big and powerful as God is, is troubling in itself. Especially if you've lived with or near someone who has or had a real anger problem. Then you know the unpredictability, the damage, the, the fear, the insecurity, the abuse the demeaning effects that anger can have. Anger is, is troubling to us. So to have God angry is really troubling. I mean, often God seems so good and loving, and, and it's this side of God which drew so many of us to God. How could God get so angry? Does God have bad, angry days like this? Or is the God of the Old Testament different from the God of the New Testament? That's the first problem that some of us struggle with with this passage, right? The second problem is we may be troubled by the fact that God holds the whole nation of Israel responsible for one man's sin. 
Verse 1 says, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. But as it turns out, it was just because of Achan's sin. But the whole nation is blamed here. God is angry with a lot of them. And as a result, the nation loses the next battle they fight at Ai, and a number of men, innocent men it would seem, die in the process. This doesn't seem fair. How can I be guilty for what someone else did? Third, and even worse, how can God punish the next generation, specifically in this case, Achan's sons and daughters, for what their dad did? Again, this seems alarmingly unfair. We may wonder what kind of God would treat people this way. And fourth and finally, we might find it troubling that Achan's punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. Sure, he stole some stuff, but, but does he really deserve to have him and his whole family stoned to death and everything they possess burned? Couldn't he just be made to give it back, maybe with interest and maybe a few years in prison or something? Well, as with last week's troublesome passage, I'm not going to pretend to give satisfactory answers to all of these questions and problems. But again, knowing some background and some context may help us to better understand what's happening here as those in Joshua's day would have understood it. So two observations I'd like to make. Um, First, a reminder about harem warfare. We talked about harem warfare in detail last week. Harem means devoted, and in harem warfare, everything is devoted to God. That's what's going on here. It was the Battle of Jericho, which this is following up on. God is present in harem warfare on the battlefield in all of God's holiness, and it's God's war, and so all of the plunder belongs to God. What can be burned is burned as an offering to God. What can't be burned is brought into God's treasury to belong to God. Further, because in harem warfare, everything is brought into the presence of a holy God, and because everyone on the battlefield are all sin-stained and unworthy to come into the presence of a holy God, in harem warfare, every person is destroyed as an enactment of God's just penalty on sin. Remember, I said last week that from a biblical perspective, while we may be surprised that all of God's enemies are put to death in harem warfare, it's equally surprising that God's people can have a holy God present with them in battle, and yet they survive unscathed. God showers great grace on them. Well, in today's story, we find out that Israel did not completely carry out God's command of harem warfare here. Rather, a man named Achan coveted some of the plunder that was devoted to God. He stole it from God and he hid it, uh, deceitfully acting as if he'd obeyed God. And as a result, Achan crossed over from being on God's side as one of God's protected people to being on the side of God's enemies. By keeping for himself what was devoted to God and assigned for destruction, Achan himself became devoted to God and assigned for destruction. Achan stepped outside of the umbrella of God's grace, so to speak, that God had extended over his people through his covenant with them, and Achan became a part of that which was devoted to destruction. That's how this passage understands what happened to Achan. Verse 12, God says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. 
Verse 13, there are devoted things among you, Israel. Verse 15, whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. Now let me ask you a different question. If you're in a war, who do you treat more harshly, your enemies or one of your own countrymen who becomes a traitor and defects to the enemy? The traitor, right? And so it's no wonder that God's anger burns against Achan here. Achan has gone over to the dark side. Achan has sided with the enemy. He's broken God's covenant, that the promise, the treaty God had made with his people, in which God promised to be faithful to them, and they promised to be faithful to God. And, and so we may consider what Achan has done to be a relatively small thing, but listen to how God views it. Verse 1. Achan was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Verse 10, he had violated my covenant, says God. Verse 15, he has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Not only did Achan covet the devoted things, thereby breaking the tenth of the Ten Commandments, not only did Achan steal them, thereby breaking the eighth, not only did Achan lie about it in verse 11, presumably by hiding the plunder and acting as if he'd done nothing wrong, thereby breaking the ninth commandment, but who did Achan steal from? God himself. It's one thing to steal from the share of a fellow soldier, but when you steal from the king himself, you're in serious trouble. And this was no small sum that Achan stole. Scholars estimate that Achan stole a lifetime's earnings worth of wealth, perhaps several million dollars by modern standards. In other words, Bernie Madoff had nothing on Achan. And it's all the more serious because this happened in the context of harem warfare. These things were specifically devoted to God. They were very intentionally set apart for God only. God doesn't have an anger problem. His anger is healthy and appropriate here. In God's estimation, Achan's action here is outrageous and the epitome of unfaithfulness. And because we are in the habit of dumbing down God's standards, this story invites us to wonder afresh how serious our sins are in God's estimation. Second observation, and that is that people in Joshua's day lived with a sense of corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity is the idea that individuals belong to a group and it's one for all and all for one. Does the individual do well? Well, then the group expects to benefit. Maybe you've heard, like I have, stories from missionaries in Africa who talk about how when one individual uh, comes into some money, it isn't long before the whole village is there with their hands out, expecting to benefit from the one member's good fortune. That's corporate solidarity. And it works the other way, too. If, if something bad happens to an individual, the group somehow expects to, to face and bear the consequences together. Now, corporate solidarity is quite a foreign and even an abhorrent perspective to us today in the West who are thoroughly steeped in individualism. We like to think that this world is not really a web of interconnectedness, that 
we like to think that our personal actions are nobody else's business and have no consequences on anyone else. But that's not how most of the world throughout most of history has viewed reality. Partly because they were in many ways wiser than us. And partly because in the ancient world, particularly, people needed one another just to survive. So they had more of a sense of it's all for one and one for all. What you do affects me and what I do has an impact on you. And so from the Israelite perspective, the sin of one man in their midst brings guilt on all of them. And that might seem strange to us, but it was perfectly obvious to them because their identity was as part of the group and their fate was all wrapped up in the fate of the group. And so at that point of history, it was not unusual in many cultures for a whole family to pay the punishment for a father's sin. Or, of course, for the whole family to reap the benefits of a father's good fortune. And so at times, that's how God treated people back then. Now, as history has progressed and cultures have changed, God has adjusted the way he deals with his people. And in the Bible, we see this specifically in Ezekiel 18 during the period of the exile. There, God says, um, what do you mean or what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. From that point forward. From that point forward, God created, or God treated, sorry, each individual based on their own decisions and actions. And no longer treated them based on the decisions and actions of their parents or grandparents. Culture had changed. And God, it seems, adjusted accordingly. But back in Joshua's day, we're dealing with a culture of strong corporate solidarity. And that's how God treats the people in this case. All right, so that's background to help us understand the story of Achan the way those in Joshua's day would have understood it. And I think when we understand it in its own day, it takes some of the scandal out of the story. But but this story still has bite, doesn't it? It's still like a splash of ice-cold water in our faces as we confront a God who responds to sin this way. And I think it's a reminder to us about how seriously God views sin. We can be very grateful that this story is the exception and not the rule, right? <laughs> For every story in the Bible where someone sins against God and pays for it with their lives, there are dozens of stories where God's people sin and God has mercy and forgives their sin. And it's a gross oversimplification and distortion to say that in the Old Testament, God was vengeful and wrathful, and in the New Testament, God has become good and kind and loving. That's a heresy, actually. It's a false teaching. Because scripture is clear that God does not change. He adjusts to deal with people when they change, but God in his essential character does not change. The God who poured out his wrath on the Israelites in the day of Moses or Joshua is the same Jesus who died for our sins. God has not changed. God is full of mercy in the Old Testament. 
God bears with His people, lovingly forgiving their sin again and again. And in the New Testament, God still occasionally dishes out swift and decisive punishment for sin. Just think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. It's an Achan story in the New Testament. God has not fundamentally changed. So where does that leave us? Why can God be so merciful so often and yet swiftly punish sin in certain cases? Well, I think it's a reality check. Remember